You know, sometimes we ask our kids to do something, and either they don't do it, or they do it, but they don't do it the way that you ask them to do it. And so the easy thing would be to just discipline them for not doing what you told them to do and move on. But I think the prudent parent will seek to find out why it was not done or not done correctly. And sometimes you find that they just misunderstood what you had asked them to do. And other times, they disregarded what you asked them to do. Well, today, we'll see that even spirit-empowered judges like Jephthah and Samson are unable to stay faithful to the covenant that Israel had with God. But what we want to find out is why. Why did these judges fail to be faithful? And so we're going to begin with looking at Judges chapter 11 to start, and we're going to make our way all the way through Judges 16. So bear with me. First of all, I think in the story of Jephthah, we find that Jephthah misunderstood God. Israel had again abandoned Yahweh to worship the Baals and to worship the Ashtoreths, but this time, Scripture tells us that not only were they worshiping those gods, but they were worshiping the gods of Aram, they were worshiping the gods of Sidon, of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. So God had turned them over to the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Scripture says that these tribes... These other nations came and crushed Israel and enslaved them for 18 long years. And so God raised up Jephthah as the next judge that we find. And he was a great warrior, but his past was deeply troubled. First, Jephthah was a Gildealite. And as far as the other tribes of Israel, such as the Ephraimites, were concerned... They were from the wrong side of the tracks, to say, to use a modern phrase. But he was also from a dysfunctional family. He was an illegitimate child. He was born of a prostitute. His father, uh, his family cast him out. And so he fled out into the wilderness, where he gathered with a band of outlaws, men who were brigands and thieves, and he became a complete social outcast. But among these outlaws, Jephthah became the leader. He became the leader of organized crime. So what was Jephthah? He was a mob boss, basically. He was the underworld's boss. But then when the leaders of Gilead were attacked by the Ammonites, they came to Jephthah and asked him to come and lead their armies against the Ammonites. And Jephthah agreed that he would come and fight for them on the condition that he would become their leader. So he had some ambition, right? He was outcast, went out to these outcasts, and became their leader. And then when the rest of the people came, he said, fine, but I'm going to be your leader when this is done. And they agreed. Now, Jephthah was not only a good warrior and a good commander, but he was also quite the diplomat. He was really good at easing people with words. And so, as he comes in as leader, he goes 
to the enemy, and he tries to solve this issue diplomatically, and that fails. And that's where we pick up our story here in chapter 11 and verse 29. If you would look with me there. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you will hand over the Ammonites to me, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Now before we continue, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of reading your text this morning. Lord, that you've given us your word through our what we call the Holy Bible. And Lord, that you speak to us through it. You have lessons for us to learn through it. All scripture is profitable for teaching and for discipline, for correction and encouragement and good works. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would convict our hearts, contend with our minds as we read this. Lord, we're getting into some dark stuff this morning. We see the nature of the human reality when we're apart from you. So, Lord, may this draw us to you. and May we be found faithful to you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so Jephthah makes this vow. And... This vow is without parallel in the rest of the Bible. There's nowhere else that we see it. And here's the reality. This vow is a Canaanite type of vow. So although the Lord was already on him, the Spirit of the Lord was already on him, Jephthah made this promise to Yahweh that if you give me victory, I will give you a human sacrifice. Whoever comes out of the door of my house first to welcome me, I will offer on the flames. And he expected, I think, he expected that would be one of his servants. And this sounds quite strange to us, but if you understand the background here, at this time, the Israelites were not worshiping Yahweh, not worshiping the God of their fathers, but instead they were worshiping the gods of the Ammonites and of the Moabites, whose leaders were known to sacrifice children to their gods, false gods, Milcom and Kamash. And that was the way idol worship worked. You would try to impress the gods by offering up some lavish gift, and what greater gift is there than a human sacrifice, right? At least that's their mindset. Well, Jephthah sees Yahweh as being like these pagan gods, a being whose favor could be earned through flattery and through sacrifices. He was seeking to manipulate God to gain favors from him because that's the way the idols worked. And so Jephthah had gained political power, and he had everything to gain if Yahweh was with him. He had everything to gain if he gained this victory, but if he lost this victory or if he lost this battle, then all of his political clout would be gone. 
And so, if God would abandon him, the people would abandon him. And so, the son of a prostitute embodies Israel. Everything that was wrong with the harlotry, the harlot nation of Israel, was found in Jephthah. The sacrifice was not an expression of gratitude toward God for what he had done. It was a tool that was to be used to manipulate God. Well, Jephthah was neither rash, as some have said. This is a rash vow. I don't think this was a rash vow. I don't think this was a pious vow either. The point that the author is trying to make here is that it is a pagan vow. That Jephthah was so steeped in the syncretistic worship of these other gods, he didn't know what God's nature truly was. He saw God as being just like all these other Canaanite gods. He didn't know him as a God of grace. He didn't know God's true nature because he was surrounded with this false gods. And before we move on from this, let me point out something. God doesn't respond to this. God doesn't say that this is wrong, but he doesn't say that I want you to do this either. This was Jephthah coming up with this. This was Jephthah's vow. It came solely from a human viewpoint, not from God. And I think the real tragedy that we're going to see here is that this vow was completely unnecessary. Because God had already decided that he was going to save his people. The Spirit of the Lord had already come on Jephthah. The battle had already been decided because God was going to fight. But Jephthah just misunderstood the nature of God. Now, you say, what what does that have to do with us? But I've seen the same thing happen among the churches in the United States. Men and women have taken the paint of other pagan teachings and taken the paint of Christian teachings and combined them together and with a large brush have painted a picture of a God that is not the God of the Bible. This God that they claim is is a force that you must speak positively to and command this, this force to obey you. And it must obey you. God must obey you because you have the spark of divinity within you. They say that if you have negative thoughts, it's going to bring negative experiences. And if you think positive thoughts, it's going to be positive experiences. If you speak positive words, it's going to bring positive lifestyle changes to you. The power of positive thinking. You must attract that which you desire. And if you do so in the name of the Lord, because he is God, it will be yours. We call this commonly the prosperity gospel, and it's a dangerous teaching. It's a synchristic religious practice that has invaded not just those churches that teach that, but invaded small churches like ours through the books that have been published and read, through the videos that we watch on the news or watch on TV. It's coming in, and we must guard against it. For if we allow it, it will lead to our ruin. Look what happens to Jephthah. As the Lord said, he would defeat the Ammonites. He takes the battle 
The Lord hands it over to him, and he returns home victorious. And look with me what happens in verse 34. When Jephthah went to his home in Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out of the, to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter beside her. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. Wow. Expecting that if he made this vow, he would sacrifice a servant. But instead of a servant who is his only child, his daughter, who when he comes home, Victoria, she's not come running out to meet him as the great hero of the battle. She's running out to meet him as her father. And the fact that she is his only child is easy to overlook. And we, we look at it and we think of with our modern mindset, oh, how horrible that is. And don't get me wrong, it is. It's the greatest form of child abuse to sacrifice your children. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that she was his only descendant. And if he were to sacrifice her, his whole lineage comes to an end. There's no one to carry on the family name, and which for Israel means that his name has been blotted out of the history of Israel. Because there's no one to continue it on. So the question is, would he do it? And through this we find that neither Jephthah nor his daughter knew God, knew the nature of God, for Yahweh had made it clear in Deuteronomy that he did not accept human sacrifice. And in fact, he found it to be an abomination that was a practice by the idols and false gods. And they weren't familiar with Yahweh's laws either. For according to the book of Leviticus, if someone made a vow concerning a human sacrifice or something regarding to people, then they could go to the priest and they could pay 30 shekels in compensation and should be, have been free to live. But Jephthah could have saved his daughter from his stupid Canaan vow, but he was so unfamiliar with God's law, because he was so unfamiliar with God's nature, ultimately, he kept the vow that was made. And he sacrificed his daughter, and the scripture says that the woman, the, the girl was remembered for generations, and we today, we still, as we read this, we're grieving her, her useless death. She was a victim of a faithfulness to a vow that reflected an unfaithfulness to God. Jephthah was thoroughly paganized. He was an Israelite in name, but he was a pagan in practice, and he was faithless toward Yahweh. And because of that, because of his faithful faithlessness, it ended him. The man who had sought to manipulate God was doomed because of his foolish sacrifice. 
his foolish vow for his own temporary benefit. Jephthah's conduct here demonstrates how Israel had become more and more and more like everybody else to the point that they didn't even know what God was truly like. And in this national backsliding, you you see how sin disintegrates the family. Jephthah's mother sold her body for money. His father assumed no responsibility for his sexual conduct. Jephthah had no father. He lacked the nation's theological origin. He didn't have any connection with God. He was cut off from his spiritual heritage. He knew nothing but the way the world worked. And this highlights the problem that we see in our world today of fatherlessness and the loss of a biblical understanding of fatherhood that is so prevalent in our culture. Because sin doesn't affect just individuals. It doesn't just affect individuals' families. What affects the individual, what affects the family, affects the nation. Sin's not just a private problem. We like to think, well, it's not hurting anybody but me. And the reality is it's hurting you hurting everybody around you, and when everybody's doing the same thing, it's hurting us as a nation. It's hurting us as a church. It's hurting us as a community. And that's the reality, is that sin is a social, public, and communal issue. And we live in the midst of it. And it is our job as the church to go, step into the culture, and to minister to those who are broken, to minister to those who are from broken homes, to help them see how God is different from the world. Jephthah had a fundamental misunderstanding of God because he had nobody to teach him, and and it just went really bad for him. And as bad as that was, we're going to see things continue to just get worse. We're going to look at our next judge, and he's One that probably everybody knows. Probably everybody, if you've ever been to Sunday school, you know this name. He's the strongest man ever. Samson. Look with me at chapter 13, the last judge that we're going to look at. While the Ammonites were plaguing the Transjordan tribes in East Israel... The Philistines were applying pressure on the west side. And for 40 years, 40 years, the Philistines ruled over Israel. But we're going to find that they remained a problem for many, many, many years. During those 40 years of their oppression, coexistence with the Philistines became the norm for Israel. And unlike all these other judges' stories that we've read, we don't see that Israel ever comes to the Lord and cries out and says, Come save us. This is a different story. They never repented of their sin. They never cried out to the Lord. And in fact, we're going to find that God was more concerned with saving them than they were with having God save them. And through this story, we're going to see how Samson demonstrates Israel's attitude in disregarding God. Disregarding God. So let's start with the birth of Samson. 
Samson was called to be in the role of judge or deliverer before he was ever born. An angel of the Lord came to an Israelite woman, and, and she was barren. She couldn't have children, but said, you're going to have a child. But this child is going to be full of the Spirit. He's going to be used by God. But in order for that to happen, he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to take the Nazarite vow. And the term Nazarite comes from the word that means to dedicate or consecrate. So in other words, before he was ever born, he was consecrated to the Lord and for his service. His mother was not to partake of any alcohol or anything that was unclean. That way it didn't filter into his body. And so I find this to be an interesting statement here, though, because all of Israel was supposed to refrain from unclean foods, but obviously they weren't because it has to be stated. According to the Israelite law of the Nazarite vow, any person who made this vow was committing to three things. They wouldn't take any kind of intoxicating drink. They wouldn't have contact with a corpse and make them unclean. And they would not cut their hair. So Samson was set aside by God at his conception, for God at his conception. And this divine uh, imposition came. It wasn't a voluntary vow. It was one that was brought by the Lord. He needs to do this. And we find that his mother is nameless. And she's faithful, though, to follow the instructions the angel gave her during her pregnancy. She abstained from alcohol. She abstained from unclean food. And she made sure that as Samson was growing up, he remained consecrated to the Lord. And I think there's a good word there. But there's so much good stuff in Samson that it's just going to be kind of fly by. But parents, if... I want this to encourage you. You can do everything right. You can raise them up in the Lord, and then we'll see what happens to Samson here. So Samson in chapter 13 is set up as this long-awaited deliverer who's going to come and save Israel from the Philistines and, and lead them into glory. But will he fulfill the promise is the question. Well, look with me at verse 14 and verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now, get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me, because... I want her. Now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. So, this is an interesting concept here. Despite what God's law says about intermarriage between those who worship Yahweh and those who don't, despite that role, that rule, Samson intermingles with the Philistines. While he's out and about in the town, he sees this young Philistine woman, and he, immediately he goes, I want her. I want to marry her, or I want her to be my wife. His passion is, is sparked, and he, he tells his parents, I want her like she's an object. And they object to this, 
But they don't object on a theological level. It's not because of the law of God and this imposition. It's because it's culturally inappropriate. She's a Philistine. We're an Israelites. They're oppressing us. Why would you want to marry them? So it's an affront to their culture, and that's what they're concerned about. They don't say anything about the law. But the woman in question is an enemy of Israel, and Samson, with his eyes, sees her, and he's inflamed for her. He's passionate for her. He determined that he wanted to do what was right in his eyes, not what was right in God's eyes, and not what was right in his parents' eyes. He relied on his feelings to do what was right, and didn't consider the implications that this relationship would have for his mission to free Israel from the Philistines. While Samson and these other characters don't see what's going on, remember, Israel had not repented. They had not sought God to free them from the Philistines. They were happy with the way things were, or at least content with the way things were. But God was working to free them even when they didn't know that they needed to do anything. So look at what happens in verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And suddenly a young lion came roaring at him. The Spirit of the Lord took control of him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because Samson wanted her. After some time, when he returned to get her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass, and there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it, and as he went along, he, when he returned to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. So, we saw that God was shaking some things up. He wanted the people to come into conflict. He wanted the Philistines and Samson to have this conflict. And so we see that he's setting this up by this marriage with this woman, this Philistine woman. But then, right after we see that God's working in Samson's life, Samson goes and kills a lion, and the carcass of the lion he later comes back and finds is full of bees and honey. And according to God's law, any Israelite should not come into contact with a corpse because it makes an object unclean. So even an ordinary Israelite should have just walked on by. But Samson is a Nazarite who made a vow that he would not touch anything unclean. And what does he do? Oh, look, that honey looks good. Let's go scoop some out and eat it. Right? Who, who thinks that? Oh, look, there's a dead animal with some honey in it. Let's go scoop that stuff out and put it in my mouth. Anyway, he does it. Further, he takes some and gives it to his parents but doesn't tell them where it came from. And so he defiles himself, and then he defiles his parents without their knowledge. Now, Samson's parents had sanctified him to the Lord, but he had desecrated himself, and he had desecrated his parents by this one act. And so, so far, Samson has disregarded the law about marrying an unbeliever, a foreigner, a pagan woman, and he's disregarded his vow to remain unclean by not touching the corpse. But then look what happens in verse 10. His father went to visit the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, as young men were accustomed to do. And let's go ahead and read 11. When the Philistines saw him, they brought 30 men to accompany him. Now, so Samson's going to marry this Philistine woman, and he prepares a feast, which doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Oh, he's having a feast. Good for him. This might seem innocent, but the, feast that is, the, the word for feast that's used there 
specifically refers to a week-long keg party that's happening at the bride's house in this pagan culture. In fact, archaeologists have found that the most common type of pottery in the Philistine settlements was a beer jug, which emphasizes the reality of this story. And so, while it may sound innocent if you just read over it, Samson's spending a week partying with the enemy, getting intoxicated with them, and so we find that his vow to not take alcohol has been nullified as well. Then he has this marriage ceremony. And this pictures Israel, Samson marrying this Philistine, the women uh, and men of, of Israel were marrying the Philistines and other pagan nations. They were called to be set apart, to be gifted for service to Yahweh, but instead they were fraternizing and living among the enemy. And we see that God, in his determination to stir up the relationship between the Israelites and the Philistines, begins to bear fruit here. Namely, through Samson and his passions, his private escapades. Now, he doesn't see God working in this, but we should. There were 30 Philistines at the ceremony, and Samson was looking to make things a little more interesting. And so he challenged them to a wager. If you can guess my riddle, I will give you 30 items of clothing. If you can't, then you're going to reward me for my cleverness and give me 30 items of clothing. And his riddle is found in verse 14. He says to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Well, here's the reality. He's looking back to this idea of the lion. But nobody was around to see what happened with the lion, so nobody would know the answer to this riddle. The Philistines were not able to figure it out. So for seven days they were trying to figure out this riddle. They couldn't figure it out, so they blackmailed his new wife and threatened her and her family to burn down their home and kill them. And so she went and was asking Samson day and day and day throughout their wedding feast that's supposed to be this great fun time to celebrate. She's weeping and crying every time she sees him. It's driving him crazy. Right? It's messing with his emotions. And so, finally he breaks down and tells her what happened. And she goes and tells the Philistines. So they come back and answer in verse 18, saying, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? Now this riddle, this real narrative, this real story, this answer to the riddle giving us a little bit of a meta-narrative here. Because it shows us that despite Samson's great strength, he's stronger than a lion, right? He can rip a, a lion apart. But despite his great strength, Samson's emotions prove to be stronger. And when he gets into the hand of a woman, he melts. And so they give him the correct answer. He accuses them, rightly so, that they wouldn't have found out the answer if they hadn't asked his wife and threatened her. And so angered at the betrayal that he had, he was true to his word. He gave them the 30 items. But the way he got the 30 items is he went to the nearest town and killed 30 men and took their clothes. He brought them back and gave them to the men. And the, he goes back home to Israel, to his father's house, mad at the situation. 
Sometime later, he goes back and wants his wife. But his wife had been given to another man. Samson had left. He had abandoned her. He'd gone away. So rightly, the man went, well, I guess that's done. That, that marriage didn't last very long. Well, let's give, give her to this man. So he comes back. He wants his wife. Things don't go so well. So Samson goes, well, let's attack the Philistine's economy. Right? The, the wheat fields had just come. He goes and he captures some, some jackals or foxes. He ties their tails together with a torch and sends them out into the wheat fields. And they, you know, struggling, trying to get away from each other and doing out there, running around and stopping and catching the wheat fields on fire. And burns down their fields, greatly impacting their economy. And so then the men of the town are like, we got to do something against Samson. And so they go to his would-have-been wife and her father-in-law, and they burn them up in their house, kill them. Well, Samson, so now it's time for him to retaliate against them, right? Let's just keep escalating forces, right? And so he goes, and it says that he tore them all limb from limb. He, he killed them all. And then he went to Judah hide. Well, the Philistines have now had not only the 30 men, but all these others that had come to Samson that had been killed by Samson. And so they're now trying to capture him. And now we find that this personal vendetta between Samson and the Philistines has escalated into an international crisis. Because they come to the Judites and they say, where's Samson? And they began attacking and ransacking uh, Judah. And the Judites, we're, we're at this point, we're expecting they're going to they're gonna see that this man was God's judge, that he's trying to deliver them from the Philistines, that he's gonna, they're going to stand up and join Samson and fight against the enemy. But instead, we find that they just want to They're okay with the Philistines being in rule over them. They've gotten comfortable in their idol worship. They were satisfied in their enslavement to them. So instead of rising up to defend Samson, they turned him over to the enemy. They bound him and turned him over to the Philistines. You know, we are often like the Judites. We get comfortable in our sin. We get satisfied with the way things are. We don't mind being enslaved to our sin. We don't want to stir up the waters. We want peace instead of truth. And we refuse to go against the culture around us. And we engage in the sinful things of this world because we don't want conflict. We've got the idea we don't want to rock the boat because then we might tip the boat over. But God has called us to stand up to be countercultural from the world, to be in the world but not of the world, and to live for him. The Judahites, they weren't interested in that. And so they turn Samson over to them. Pick up with me in chapter 15, verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord took control of him, that is Samson, and the ropes that were on his arms became like burnt flax, and his bonds fell off of his wrist. 
He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Now, the fresh jawbone of a donkey means two things. First, it means it was solid. It hadn't dried out, wasn't brittle, so it was useful as a weapon. But because it was so fresh, it makes it still part of a corpse, still part of a dead animal. So once again, Samson had violated his Nazarite vow, but yet, despite that, the Lord still empowered him to defeat the enemy. But then, after he defeats them, Samson breaks out into a poetic song. And if we're reading this, and you've been with us through this study so far, if you remember back to Deborah and Barak, when they experienced victory, they had a song, and they ascribed victory to the Lord. But here, Samson gives victory to himself, glory to himself. And then we see the first time that Samson praised the Lord. First time we have recorded that he even speaks to God. And just like Jephthah, he's trying to command God. He's just pointing at God and saying, God, I have defeated these enemies, and now I'm thirsty and I'm going to die. Give me a drink. Give me some water. Don't let me fall in the hands of my enemies. It's all focused on him and on his needs and not at all focused on God. And God is gracious to answer. But then as we get into chapter 16, Samson again goes and starts fraternizing with the enemy's women. For some reason, he's just drawn to the Philistines that according to human logic, it's just his emotions. He just can't stay away. But we find that the Lord is still working in He's using Samson's faults to accomplish his goals to bring conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. Well, we're going to skip forward a little bit in the story because Samson goes with the infamous Delilah. If you are familiar with the story, this is probably the part that you're familiar with. Delilah tried several times to get the secret of Samson's great strength. The Philistines had promised her great riches if she could get the answer and turn him over to them. In verse 7, Samson told her that if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become weak and be like any other man. Now that's easy to look over because we don't understand bowstrings the same way they did, but bowstrings would have been fresh tendons from an animal. So once more, Samson has shown... He says, if you wrap me up in dead animal tendons, then I will be weakened. Once again, interacting with a corpse, desecrating himself according to his vow and according to the law. But three times he tells Delilah the wrong answer. Finally, she gets her emotions all worked up, right? She starts the tear, tear ducts going, the waterworks are happening. She's moving his emotions. And Samson responds like this. Verse 16. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth. He opened his heart to her and said to her, My hair have never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, 
she sent this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time, for this time he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came and brought the money with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. And in this way she made him helpless and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape just as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson finally told Delilah the secret of his success. And we find in this story that Samson's problem with his vow isn't so much that he willingly violates it, but that he doesn't take this vow seriously. He was just playing around with it. He knew that this was the reason for his great strength. And yet he constantly, he constantly disregarded it. He was playing around with it. And you know, many Christians do the same thing. You claim to make a decision to follow Christ. But then you play around with that commitment and you don't take it seriously. And you think, well, that was something I did as a young kid or a young man or a young woman. And you play at church. And you play at Christianity. But the reality is you act like the world. You don't take it seriously. And instead of seeing it as a calling to be fulfilled, you act like it's something just to be messed around with. And when the time comes, you find that you've compromised too much. Just like Samson had. Samson didn't know that the Lord had left him, but compromise after compromise, Samson got closer and closer to his defeat. And this time, his supernatural strength was gone. The divinely chosen agent, divinely raised agent of God, had turned his back on God again and again, and this time God turned his back on Samson, and Samson's game was done. The judge, we find, who had done what was right by his own eyes, the way the Philistines punished him was they gouged his eyes out. The judge who enjoyed humiliating his enemies with his cleverness was humiliated by his enemies. And the judge that had the high calling upon his life to save Israel from themselves and from their enemies, the man who had this great giftedness, this great strength, was now at the bottom because God had left him. And if we left off there, it would be a very, very sad ending. And it's still a sad ending. But we had questioned the writer of Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews says that Samson was a man of faith. And so far, have we seen anything of faith from Samson? No, we haven't. So where did Samson exercise faith? It was only when Samson was at his lowest point that he finally turned toward God. The Philistines had gathered together to praise their God and to mock Samson. But the contest here wasn't between Samson and the Philistines. It was between Yahweh and Dagon, the God of the Philistines. Who is stronger? Who should Israel serve? Who would remain? Remember, God's working in the background to confront Israel with the reality that they need to turn back to him. So when Samson finally turns back to Yahweh and prays to him a sincere prayer, God literally brings down the house. 
Samson's strength is restored and he pushes the pillars apart and the whole building comes collapsing down. And scripture says that in his death, he killed more enemies than he had in his life. But unlike all of our other stories of the judges that end in so many years of peace, there's no mention of peace. The Philistines continued to be a problem for Israel throughout the rest of the book of Judges, throughout the, the reign of King Saul. It is only when King David comes that he defeats the Philistines once and for all. Israel remained idolatrous, seeking after other gods, until David came. They were unrepentant. And we're going to see next week how things just continued to get worse for them. Because the spiritual idolatry remained, so did the physical oppression. But God was about more than rescuing his people from their local enemies. He wanted to rescue them from themselves, from their idolatry, from their sin. And so many, many, many years later, he raised up a new deliverer. The promise that he had in Samson wasn't fulfilled in Samson, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was God's son, fulfilled the promise that Samson had held. Even when humanity was so steeped in our compromise with our sin that we didn't even know to turn to God, God provided for us. And unlike Samson, Jesus did not compromise. He didn't disregard or misunderstand God's law. He kept it perfectly. And despite that perfection, People hated him and wanted him to die. But Jesus willingly gave up his life, sacrificed it, much like Samson sacrificed his life, but he sacrificed it to deliver us from our greatest enemies, which were sin and death, not the Philistines. When Samson died, he went to his grave and he stayed there. When Jesus died, he went to his grave, but three days later he rose up from the dead. Jesus gives new life to those who believe. Confess him as Lord. Now, we've all misunderstood God's nature. We've all disregarded God's law. We've all fallen short of God's glory. But Christ knew God because he was God. He knew God's nature perfectly. He knew God's law perfectly, and he upheld it perfectly. And he was declared righteous before the Lord. But he willingly gives us his righteousness and takes our sin if we admit that we are sinners believe that God raised him from the dead and confess him as our Lord so will you be like the Israelites will you be comfortable in your sin and your enslavement or will you turn to Christ and be free the choice is yours today whom will you serve Would you stand with me as we close with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning and the word that you have for us. Pray that you would, God, move our hearts, not with passion that is unrelenting like Samson, but with an emotion and a love for you that you have stirred up within us. May we turn from our sin and turn to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Home one that we're seeing this morning.